Good morning, church. I invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that Craig read for us in the book of Nahum. How many here have ever heard a sermon in the book of Nahum? If you're here last hour, maybe. I have preached out of Nahum, but it's been a while, and that's why we are in this series. As As you turn here, just a reminder that September is National Recovery Month. And we have one of the best ministries going when it comes to recovery, celebrate recovery, on Friday nights. Just want to highlight that. If you have not been to one of our celebrate recoveries or dropped in to see it, it's an amazing ministry. It is described as ministry for those who are struggling with hurts, habits, bad habits, and hang-ups, which is pretty much everybody. But it is a very thriving ministry. Dave and Josette Bryan lead it. It's in its 19th year here at our church, and we're very proud of that ministry, and so we just want to highlight that. If it is something you are looking for and are struggling with one of those highlighted uh, habits, those struggles, those hang-ups, I would encourage you to check it out. It is a thriving, truly God-centered ministry here. The book of Nahum, we are in a series in the Minor Prophets, and we're doing one a week, all 12 of them. And this weekend, we come to this book, a shorter book, only 47 verses in length. It is actually a collection of uh, poems, Hebrew poems, about the downfall of Nineveh. Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was the most powerful empire on the earth at this time. And yet, through this book, God announces that this Empire, which terrorized pretty much everybody in their neighborhood. The nations were in fear of Assyria, and they terrorized the known world at that time. And yet God says in this small book, they are not really in charge. I am, and I will take them down. And so you can see the title I chose for the sermon today, Who's in Charge? Who really is most powerful? Nahum picks up basically where the prophet Jonah leaves off. You'll hear me contrast the two of them this morning. Jonah went to Nineveh, preached, and there was a revival. The gospel broke out. That was about a hundred years earlier in history. It is now a hundred years later. Assyria has gone back to their old ways, to the occult, witchcraft, violence, bloodshed, and brutality. And God announces mercy is over for Nineveh, mercy is over for Assyria, and we will see that. But what's very encouraging in this book is also there is another message coming at the people of God that no matter how great the darkness within them or around them, that God's word will sustain them and he will sustain them through his Holy Spirit. So there's some very encouraging words here about who God is and his love and his care for his people. We're going to dive in and tackle the book. Nahum really divides the first chapter, highlights the power of God, and then chapters two and three highlight the justice of the Lord. And so that is how we will approach the book. And it means this book ultimately is about God. This is not really a book about Assyria. This is not really a book about Nineveh or what was going on. It was a book and it was written, and it's a book about who God is. So let's dive in. The power of the Lord is chapter one. 
Let me read verse 1 just to set the stage. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Nahum's name means either comfort or comforter. And he was a prophet who lived roughly about 650 B.C., 650 B.C. or so. And he's preaching to the southern kingdom. Remember that Israel had a civil war about 300 years before Nahum and divided into two nations. The top nation by this point is gone. Assyria had the same nation, same empire, had sacked the top 10 tribes. That was the top kingdom. They're gone. Nahum is writing to the bottom kingdom, Judah. They're left. And he's warning them. The same thing that happened to our northern brothers and sisters is going to happen to you if you don't repent. God will bring judgment. And so throughout the first chapter, what you see is a huge emphasis on that God is the one on the world stage who moves around the pieces. And God is the one orchestrating everything that comes to pass for his wise plan. Let me read verses 3 to 5. And verses 11, 14, and you will see verses that are saturated with this theme, the power of God. So look for the phrases, keep your ear attuned to the phrases that emphasize God's power in these verses. So first three to five, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. So that's the theme of the first chapter, great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm but in clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up. When's the last time you rebuked the sea and it dried up? God does. He makes all the rivers run dry, bashing in caramel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon fade. You go over to verse 14, I mean 11 to 14. From you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. This is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants. Notice this phrase. This is God announcing to the most powerful empire on the planet. This is the command. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temples of your gods. I will prepare your grave. So the universal power of God saturates this first chapter. Verse 3, he is great in power. Verses 4 and 5, he rebukes the sea and it dries up. He makes rivers run dry. He makes mountains quake. Verse 9, whatever they plot against the Lord, he turns it around and he plots against them. Verse 12, he says, although I've afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Verse 13, speaking about Nineveh to his people, God says, I will break their yoke from your neck. I mean, over and over and over, you have these statements declaring the sovereign power of God who is orchestrating everything on the world stage, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for his wise sovereign purposes. Very interesting. You can go back to a book like Ezekiel, one of the major prophets. Over 70, 70, 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet says 
that whatever God does in salvation or in judgment, he does it for one reason primarily. Quote, so that the people know I am the Lord. That is why God actually does anything for his own glory and his own reputation, his own fame and the fame of his name. But 70 different times in Ezekiel, whether God is acting in mercy to deliver his people, whether he's acting in judgment on his people or the nations, it keeps saying, I am doing this, quote, so that you might know I am the Lord, which is clearly a reference back to Exodus 3.14, where God says my name and my purpose, I am who I am. And so that is the power behind these statements. Now, these are not the statements of some kind of local tribal deity who's in a power struggle with the local warlords. These are the thundering declarations of a sovereign God, an all-powerful God who is orchestrating everything on the world stage in exact accordance with his sovereign will. Now, as a reminder, I'm going to go back for just a second in history. So you go back 100 years or so, 100 to 150 years, and Nineveh repented. Jonah went, king called a fast, and they repented. Now you're 100 to 150 years further down the road in history. They have fallen back into their old ways, and Nahum is writing to threaten and remind them what's going on. But what's interesting is just before Nahum wrote, so now I'm going to take you to about 50 years before he wrote, Assyria is back to their old ways again, but God is going to use them to bring them in again to punish his people. To see that, I want you to go back to Isaiah for just a moment, chapter 36. This is sort of the background for Nahum. Chapter 36 of Isaiah. It's a little hard with the ordering of the English Bible to exactly follow a timeline because in the Old Testament, things jump around a bit. So let me just remind you where you're at here. Jonah is about 100 years before Nahum. Isaiah 36 were about 50 years before Nahum. The revival's over in Nineveh. Assyria's back to their evil ways. And now we get the backdrop for God bringing them in again right before Nahum writes. And here's what we read. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So now it's been 50 years since the revival of Jonah's day. Assyria is back to their plundering brutality and terrorism. And they came in and plundered Judah. We're now at just about 50 years before Nahum is writing. If you go over one chapter to chapter 37, here's what's very interesting. Not only did God orchestrate the great revival in Nineveh, a hundred years before Nahum, he also orchestrated just 50 years before Nahum, bringing Assyria back into Israel to brutalize them as part of their discipline and punishment for the rebellion. And if you have any doubt about that, you look at verses 26 and verse 29 of chapter 37 of Isaiah, and you... I talk about this and I sort of joke, but this brings you to one of those sections where you get a headache just looking at what the text says. So in verse 26, chapter 37 of Isaiah, have you not heard long ago, I ordained it. This is God speaking about bringing Assyria in to Israel to attack his people. 
In days of old, I planned it, God says, and now I have brought it to pass. What is it he brought to pass? That the king of Assyria turned fortified cities into piles of stone. So God says, I'm the one that did this. This is just 50 years before Nahum's writing. But then you drop down to verse 29, and very interestingly, right after God says, I did this, I planned it, I ordained it, they plummeled my people. And then in verse 29, you read this. Because you rage against me, now God's talking to the king of Assyria. Because you rage against me and because your insulin has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and make you return by the way you came. About 500 miles back to Iraq. You say, well, how does that work? God says, I'm summoning in this brutal empire. They had a revival 50 years earlier than that, but now they're back to their old ways. So I'm going to summon them in. They're going to destroy my land and my people for their wickedness. But once they're done doing the exact thing I've brought them in to do and ordained for them to do, then I will punish the king of Assyria. How dare he touch my people? You say, well, could you explain how that works? No. I have no idea how that works on the sovereign stage. It's no different than Jeremiah 25 when God says, I'm going to summon my servant Nebuchadnezzar, same Hebrew word for servant, that he calls Moses. Moses is the servant, a Hebrew word. Same Hebrew word when God says, I'm going to summon Nebuchadnezzar, this evil warlord. He's my servant. Every world leader is God's servant. And in Jeremiah 25, said, I'm going to summon him. He's going to come in. He's going to destroy the temple, destroy my people. And when he's done, you got one paragraph later in Jeremiah 25, and God says, and once he's done doing exactly what I've ordained him to do, I will punish him for daring to touch my people. You say, well, where does divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how, how does all that work? I don't have a clue. That's why I call it headache theology. I, I don't know. But here's what we can't do. We can't downplay one of the two. See, a lot of people think, well, if our choices are truly free and we're morally accountable for them, then God can play no role in those choices. That's a philosophical conclusion. It's not a biblical conclusion. The Bible is very clear. I do operate under the authority of God. My choices are real and they have moral consequences and God is involved in the whole decision process. And yet they're still my choices. It's the same thing with predestination and human accountability. Never try to untangle things that weren't meant to be untangled in that sense and never dethrone God and say, well, then he's not really in control. He is. He says, I am control right down to the smallest detail. So that brings us to this. Repeatedly, what's interesting in the Bible is that God uses ungodly people and nations to punish and discipline his people. You see this over and over again in the Bible. You see, for, for example, I was doing some study this week, and I noticed over and over and over and over, all these verbs in a number of verses where God says, I'm the one who did this. I am the one who brings in even evil empires and evil nations to punish my people. Don't try to get me off the hook. I'm the one doing it. For example, and young people, kids, listen to this. Judges 3.8. He sold them into the hands of enemies. That's God did. Amos 6.14. He raised up nations against Israel. 2 Kings 15. He sends the king of Aram against Judah. 
Zechariah 14.2. He gathers the nations against Israel. Who gathers all the nations against Israel? God does. Isaiah 13.17. I will bring the Medes against them. Jeremiah 5.15. I am bringing a distant nation against you. Are you paying attention to the verbs here? Or 2 Kings 13.3, he kept them under the power of the king of Aram. How powerful is God? Who's really in charge here? Friends, the Bible teaches that sometimes God uses the actions and behaviors of evil people to discipline, humble, and refine his saints. Now, this is a concept that's not widely understood today in American Christianity. But you go, to back, you go back to someone like the Puritans, they got this. They wrote about this. And young people, the sooner you get this, the more the Christian life will make sense in, one, in, 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 the, in the sense of you understand that God's ways aren't always our ways. That's a huge point to get to with spiritual maturity. The Puritans wrote extensively about how God uses evil or evil people or evil nations or evil situations sometimes to refine his people. You go back to people like Thomas Watson or John Flavel or Jeremiah Burroughs or John Bunyan. They wrote about this, the English Puritans. And they reminded us that God often uses the ungodly to discipline the godly. And if you don't see this, here's what happens. You will miss God's loving hand of providence in your life, even when he brings painful circumstances. See, bottom line is this. Never forget this. How we respond to mistreatment, whatever the source of the mistreatment, whatever kind of mistreatment it is, whether it comes from friend or foe, how you respond to mistreatment, how I respond to mistreatment reflects how I view God. That's key. Let me say it one more time. How we respond to mistreatment of any kind reflects at root how we view God. That's why theology is so important. We can either humble ourselves and seek God's face, or I can get bitter and I can resort to revenge or pouting or other forms of disobedience and invite further discipline from God. How do you view mistreatment? And that is part of what Nahum is saying here is, even though God brought in the Assyrians, even though he's all-powerful, make sure they understand who's really in charge. This brings us to one other thing in Nahum chapter 1. Go back. There's one other emphasis in this chapter that cannot be avoided. You have one of the greatest concentration of statements about God's wrath, vengeance, anger, and indignation mixed with statements about his goodness and his care that you could possibly get in like one chapter. So for instance, verses 2 and 3. In fact, it would be hard to find two verses, Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that are more concentrated with words about God's fury and vengeance than these two verses. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord, Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. Notice the words. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power, and he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Go over to verses 6 and 7. Who can withstand his indignation? 
Who can endure, not just his anger, his fierce anger, his wrath is poured out like fire, rocks are shattered before him. Now those are pretty (laughs) intense verses. But then suddenly you get to verse 7. What's verse 7 say? Yahweh is good. You, You might be thinking, well, I thought it just said he's full of wrath and indignation. He is. And he's good. There's a quote in this week's community group questions from Mirzlav Vuf, Croatian theologian, reminding us of this. God is not love in spite of his wrath. God is love because of his wrath. What kind of a loving judge would just let things go and never correct, never hand out justice? God is loving because of his wrath. And you see this dual emphasis of both his wrath and fury and his grace and love that comes out in chapter 1 so beautifully. And the whole point Nahum is saying, mercy has run out for Nineveh. They had a time. There was a revival. They went back to their old ways. Their guilt has reached the tipping point, and They're now facing the wrath of God. But then in the middle of that, he reminds God's people, but remember Yahweh is good. There's love and wrath, there's justice and mercy, there's forgiveness, and yet God is the final judge. And it means this, to know the biblical God, to walk with the biblical God, to have fellowship with the biblical God, we need to make sure it's the God of the Bible and not a God of our own imagination. Too often churches are filled with people who create God in their own image and dumb him down to the cultural winds of the day And don't let him exist in his full sovereignty, both wrath, love, both mercy and justice. And if we create and worship a God in our own image, friends, we may well invite our own doom. So that's the first chapter, the power of God. Then it brings us to chapters two and three, which focus on his justice. In chapters two and three, we see God's announcement. He's going to now bring justice on the Assyrians, and it's going to be painful, (laughs) Uh, verses 8 to 10, chapter 2. In these last two chapters, Nahum is going to describe what exactly is going to happen to Nineveh and Assyria once God moves. So, for example, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless, the wealth from its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped. Hearts melt, needs give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Or look at verse 13. I don't know how you could come up with four more terrifying words than verse 13, the first four words in English. I am against you. In fact, they are repeated in chapter 3, verse 5. I am against you. This is Yahweh speaking to the king of Assyria in his empire. I am against you. Within a few years, that's exactly what happened on God's timetable. He brought in the Babylonians, and in 612, 612 BC, they obliterated the Assyrian empire unthinkable with how powerful the Assyrian Empire was and yet God moved them off the stage. God often does that. In the world scene, on the world stage, no matter how powerful an individual or a nation thinks they might be, 
God often uses him, finishes his plan, moves him away and says, next. That's the sovereign God. That is the sovereign king. That's the power he has. And he brought in the Babylonian army. They wiped them out. But it's interesting, that is until 612 B.C. That's several decades after Nahum wrote, reminding us again of God's mercy. He let this city of blood, chapter 3, verse 1, woe to the city of blood. It went on for several more decades. So young people, when you think, well, what, where's God? How come he isn't acting like right now when I'm praying? How come he didn't act tomorrow or, or next week or next month? We need to remember he's on his own timetable. But he's still good and justice still wins out. God wins in the end. That's, that's the big thing. It's interesting that when the uh, Babylonians came in, we know in 612 BC there was a massive flooding of the Tigris River and Valley and heavy rains helped the invading Babylonians because they helped collapse the walls of, of, of Nineveh. Nineveh had 70 foot high walls, 200 massive towers that fortified the city, and they had a moat that was 60 feet deep and 150 feet wide. What's the purpose of a moat in ancient warfare? To keep the enemy away from the walls for the siege. Help keep the siege away from the walls. And yet the whole thing collapsed and part of the help came from God actually bringing rains and floods. You can see this, for example, in Nahum 1.8 where the flood being spoken of here is probably literal. Chapter 1, verse 8, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. Well, who controls the rain? Who controls the Tigris River? Clearly God does. Or chapter 2, verse 6, the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. The lesson, when the sovereign Lord decrees something, nothing can thwart his plan. And God wants you to know, he wants me to know, he wants his people to know throughout the ages. It wasn't really the Babylonians that moved the Assyrians off the world stage, God says. It was me. I orchestrate all things for my glory. Finally, in chapter 3, God gives further reminders why he's bringing justice to the, to the Assyrians because of their violence, their lies, their occultic practices and witchcraft and cruelty and brutality. If you look at 3 verses 1 through like verse 3, you will be given a reminder why God acted. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. This is the city who had a bass of revival just a hundred years earlier. Friends, never forget, just because God's given mercy once doesn't automatically mean he will extend it a second time. Because he's been grace-filled once doesn't mean it's going to happen. Otherwise, we're presuming grace. We're demanding grace. We're demanding mercy. Demanded mercy is not biblical mercy. And here they are a hundred years later and they're back to their bloodshed, cruelty, terrorism, and violence. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, crack of the whips, clatter of the wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. You have any doubt why God is judging them now? Mercy is done. The tipping point of guilt has reached us, and not only will they fall, notice verse 19, chapter 3, 
when they fall, the nations will clap. (laughs) Wow. Verse 19, last verse of the book. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you, about Assyria imploding, will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Scholars also show us, like in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3. So look at chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Scholars point out here that Nahum doesn't just proclaim Nineveh's destruction. He actually indulges in prophetic taunt. T-A-U-N-T. He uses something we don't often see in the prophets. He's not just announcing judgment. God is actually taunting the Assyrians. So look at 11 to 13 where he mocks them and makes fun of them. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They're all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. So this prophetic taunt comes out in the book. Now, let me stop there a minute. This is an intense book, right? Probably not your go-to book for a feel-good morning of devotions. This is intense stuff. And the natural reaction can be, I don't like this side of God. I like the God of the New Testament and all, you know, the God of the Old Testament. Seems kind of grouchy and ornery, God of the New Testament. And so we make this division. And sometimes this gets downplayed, even by those who profess to be Christians or theologians or in the church. They don't like this portrayal of God's smoking judgment and anger. And so they massage the text. Let me give you an example. Just a couple years ago, a book came off the press. I read it called, If Grace is True, Why God Will Save Every Person. Written by two Quaker theologians, Philip Gully and James Mulholland. And they are, here's what they argue. That as you look at the Bible, they said the traditional view of God's judgment and justice and wrath, it's a mistake. And you might say, well, it's, it's there in ink, isn't it? This is, now watch this. I'm reading this on purpose to show you how subtle and crafty theological writers can be who are ignoring God's word. Quote, And here's what's interesting. Let me tell you what they're going to say, then I'll say it. They freely admit they don't believe the Bible's inspired and they don't believe it's inerrant or infallible. That gives you a lot of freedom then to start throwing phrases out the door. Quote, can a Christian believe that God will actually save everyone and there'll be no judgment? Obviously, if a Christian must believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, then the answer is no. There are simply too many verses about judgment, hell, and eternal punishment of the wicked. So they admit this stuff's all through the Bible. Now notice carefully what they're doing. Quote, we had to abandon our need to protect every word of Scripture in order to consider what we now believe to be the core message of the Bible. You see what they just said? We had to throw out a whole bunch of stuff. We're sitting in judgment over the Word of God so that we can now tell you what it really means. Talk about the height of arrogance and stupidity and foolishness and rebellion. That's exactly what they're saying. They say the core message of the Bible is God's love for us. So we weighed Scripture against Scripture and that allowed for the possibility 
This is a quote. That some descriptions of God and his behavior are simply inaccurate in the Bible. This kind of stuff goes on all the time. And this is the kind of thing you need to be careful of. Just because someone comes and writes and even publishes on a historic Christian press and says the Bible says this or that, make sure you go back and look at what the text says. Friends, we have a choice to make. Do I put myself under the book or do I put myself over the book? Do I believe what God has said or do I deny it? The Bible offers constant reminders of God's mercy and his justice whether we like it or not. And some are so bothered by this kind of language of Nahum that they, they've rejected Christianity. Charles Darwin hated the doctrine of hell. He said it was one of the chief reasons he gave up belief in God in the Bible. Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher, said the same thing. I don't like it that Jesus walked around preaching hellfire. I don't like him, he said. I'll take Buddha or Confucius. They didn't talk about that. Or Mark Twain. Interesting, kind of an interesting quip. He says... Mark Twain said, quote, I don't believe in hell, but I am afraid of it. <laughs> but I am afraid of it. Another common misconception is something I mentioned a minute ago, and that's this. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he's kind of different than the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he's a grouchy guy. The God of the New Testament, I'm going to go over there. There's love and mercy. And that's where someone like D.A. Carson, one of the best New Testament scholars on our planet, has come along and reminded us of something very important. D.A. Carson says, you know what? There's a small book called The Love of God that's very good. He said, when you get into the New Testament, you actually see both God's wrath and love ramped up. Not just his love. When Carson said, you look at statements about the wrath of God, they actually are intensified in the New Testament. That shocks a lot of Christians. For example, Matthew 5.22, Jesus Anyone who calls his brother a fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Well, that's pretty clear. Or Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road that leads to destruction. Or you want a book filled with graphic depictions of God's judgment, the book of Revelation can be absolutely chilling and horrifying. So Carson says, yes, the New Testament puts a greater emphasis on the mercy and the grace and the love of God, and it puts a greater emphasis on the wrath and the justice and the anger of God. Both. Don't do this kind of bifurcation where you got, oh yeah, you got one deity over here and one over here. That divides God, and it's unbiblical when you do that. One of the greatest tragedies of American Christianity are pastors and theological writers who try to navigate, massage, and downplay something they don't like in the text. And it's a travesty. Years ago, Richard Niebuhr, who taught at Yale Divinity School, not really a friend of conservatives at all. He was a mainline theologian, but he had enough honesty to describe the liberal gospel for what it is. I want to read his quote because it's famous, and he nails it so well. So Richard Niebuhr Yale theologian, this is his definition of the gospel of liberalism. Quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without a cross. Close quote. Couldn't have said it better myself. He nailed it. That is the gospel of liberalism. All right, summons this morning. This is an intense book. Let's be honest. 
but it's in Scripture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's calling us to do something and remember things. And I'm going to highlight two things Nahum is calling us to remember. So let's listen and make sure we get these. Number one, remember that God is all-powerful and in charge. In two words, God wins. That comes out very straight. Look at Some of us this morning are feeling overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed by the darkness in our own soul or the darkness around us or both. Nahum lived in a very dark time in which the faithful few were wondering, how long, O God, will these circumstances last? And the prophet Nahum reminds us of God's powerful, active hand working out everything, even in the darkest of times. Knowing he is all-powerful and knowing he will never forsake his own is what's designed to give his people gospel courage. John Piper in his newer book, Providence, he put out just a couple years ago, fantastic book. He says, the knowledge that God is all-powerful and will never forsake his own people, he said that, quote, nothing is more important than this. Nothing is more pervasive. Nothing is more relevant. Nothing is more glorious. Nothing is more beautiful. Nothing is more satisfying, close quote. Page 145. Highly recommend reading books on the providence of God. Reminder number one, he is all-powerful. He knows what he's doing. He's good. Don't despair. Reminder number two, remember there is a judgment day coming. The prophets announce this over and over. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Zechariah, Nahum, there is a day of judgment coming, a day of final judgment when you and I will be called to give an account to God. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Just think about your last week. What did you do or say in the privacy of your car, your home, your office, your backyard, what did you think? What did you do? What was your motive? God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Jesus says in Matthew 12, I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That sends a shudder through me. Hebrews 9, each person is destined to die once and after this comes judgment. So the bad news, Romans 3 Everyone has fallen short of God's standard. The good news, Romans 10, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Here's how to be saved. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. What's the last phrase? You will be saved. So, men and women, boys and girls, young people, Here's what it means. Here's the bottom line. I'm a bottom line guy. Here's what it means. It means that our greatest problem in life, our greatest issue, moms and dads, right now, is not a troubled marriage or wayward kids or aging parents or financial struggles or failing health or cultural wars. The main problem we have on planet Earth is how can I be reconciled to God? That is the most pressing issue. How can I find peace with God? Which is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is such good news 
because that is the avenue for God's saving grace. And so I close with this question. Do you know the living God? Have you been reconciled to the living God? Or are you just paying, playing lip service and playing church? Your answer makes all the difference in the world. And Nahum wants you to know there is a good God and he is good to those he knows and he is dreadful to those who oppose him. Father, thank you for this book and these prophets for Obadiah, for Amos, for Jonah, for Zechariah, for Haggai, and for Nahum. Father, I want to thank you for the language in the book of Nahum that your Holy Spirit inspired to remind us you are good in a refuge in times of trouble and you care for those who trust you and fear you and to those who oppose you. You are an avenging God who will take vengeance in your time and you will bring judgment. Help us not to lose heart. I pray for those here today who don't know Christ who are not yet one of his, that today might be the day you take the scales off their eyes and open their ears to hear there's a God who loves them and whose son will save them if they will surrender and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.